let me pray for us and we'll transition to our time in the Word. We'll, we'll get through this here and enjoy our time together. Our Father, we thank you for what a delightful time. Just looking around at this room with the faces of men, every man here who knows Christ, this is an unfathomable thought, was chosen before the foundation of the world. Every man here who knows Christ was brought to saving faith, was regenerated at a specific moment, ordained a billion years ago, and through a specific set of circumstances that's different for every one of us. We rejoice over the great doctrines of our faith, the doctrine of regeneration that says that the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and our hearts while we were yet rebels and still hated God. The doctrine of justification by which the life and the death of Christ are exchanged for our sinful lives and the judgment we should have received. The doctrine of sanctification, whereby through the word of God preached and and pondered and meditated upon and through the prayers that we pray and through the, the discipline of being accountable to one another, you make us more and more like Christ until that glorious day when we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. The doctrine of glorification, that someday all the sin that we have been beset with will be left behind. We will be like our Savior. We rejoice in these truths, Lord, and I pray that this morning that you would help us to rejoice in the truth of being the lowest of the low, of being last, of being least, and rejoicing in that high position. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start this morning in Proverbs chapter 10, and you can turn there. This is probably uh, the most extended preaching series I've ever done. Uh, not because there's so many messages, but because there's so many, so much time between them all. Uh, the first message in this series was November of 2022, just uh, just at a year or so ago. And that topic has been the Christian man's humility. And, and honestly, I, I think I could probably do 10 more messages on this because it's just everywhere in Scripture. Now, normally in a um, sermon miniseries, I can say things like, as you might recall, or last time we covered XYZ, and that might evoke some memory. I don't have any luxury to do that this time. Um, over the past three messages, I've covered 21 hallmarks of a Christian man's humility. And I'm, I'm not going to take the time to recreate all those, but I think it'd be more useful to recall the importance of humility. And so I, wanna, I, I do want to review that, and then I'll do the final seven hallmarks of humility. And um, if any of you are thinking, by the way, boy, I wish my wife could hear this. First of all, keep that to yourself. And secondly, um, the women's retreat in February or March is on the topic of humility. So, uh, so you can rejoice in that, um, that all of us need to be humbled. I, I opened this series a year ago by asserting that humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. That, that is our goal, is humility. Because when you're humble, that's when you're the most Christ-like. And Christ-likeness is the goal of discipleship. It's a simple definition of humility. It is having a proper estimation of yourself. That's it. Having a proper estimation of yourself. 
And, and I gave you this before, but I want to do it again. Why is humility the greatest goal of discipleship? Let me give you six reasons, and then we'll get into the seven hallmarks. Reason number one, humility is to be clothed with heavenly garments. It is to be clothed with heavenly garments. It makes you appear and act and think in godly and heavenly terms. It is your clothing. It's acknowledging your position as the created one and God's position as the creator. Uh, Humility is your clothing. There's a second reason it's so key to discipleship. Humility is a man's truest nobility. Humility is a man's truest nobility. You ever been around a guy that just can't stop giving you his resume? And you just like, all right, that, there's nothing noble about that whatsoever, is there? If you want honor and respect and nobility as a man, and those are worthy goals, the only real pathway is actually to be the servant of all. To be humble. That's the pathway to honor, respect, and nobility. Not to give off the impression of your own importance. So third reason this is important to discipleship. Humility is a sign of genuine salvation. It's a sign of genuine salvation. The root of all sin is pride. When you're repenting of sin, when you're forsaking sin, when you're hating your sin, when you can openly talk about your own sin. The very definition of that is hating pride in all its forms and taking on instead humility. That's a sign of genuine salvation. I'm going to give you a a, a chilling illustration of that in a few minutes of when that's not the case. Here's a fourth reason, and we'll hit this hard again later. Humility is the root of all obedience. Humility is the root of all obedience. I would challenge you to find one command in all of Scripture in the law of Christ contained in the New Testament that's not rooted in humility. And I'm going to uh, give you some specific examples of that later on in our time together. Here's a fifth reason it's humility is so key to discipleship. It's the answer to every habitual sin that you struggle with. Every sin habit can be dealt with with humility. And I think this is so huge um, because I I think our tendency, whatever our sin habit is, is to focus on that sin and stopping it, usually with external means, instead of focusing on the heart issue. But if you'll successfully answer the question, what pride do I have that keeps me returning to this sin over and over again? What is it that I think I deserve? What is it that I think I need? What is it that I think I should have? If you'll ponder on that, pray about that, meditate on that specific area of pride, those thoughts will begin to feel like you're chewing on aluminum foil or biting sand. You'll begin to hate those thoughts of pride and it'll begin to keep you away from that sin because you don't, you don't want anything to do with it. And the more that pride repulses you, the more you'll be able to resist the sin. Why is that? Because you're finally starting to see your sin the way God does. Through the lens of your own pride. So, it is the answer to every habitual sin. And then finally, as we're going to spend the rest of our time on together this morning, humility is the hallmark of Christ-likeness. It's the hallmark of Christ-likeness. It's the pathway to Christ-likeness. And, and there's really just such a joy in this, which I'll explain at the end. I, I think we'll, we'll bring all this together in a way that's easy to understand and, and really, uh, I, I hope, will be very helpful. Or to put it this way, if you're pursuing Christ-likeness, you're pursuing humility. If you're pursuing humility, you are by default pursuing Christ-likeness. So that's just some introductory thoughts. Let's get into the final seven hallmarks of the Christian man's humility.
The first one is he takes responsibility when wrong. He takes responsibility when wrong. And we find this in Proverbs 10, 17. We're, we're going to go to a number of scriptures. I won't turn to scripture. Uh, I won't have you turn for all seven hallmarks, but we will for some of them. Proverbs 10, 17. He is on the path of life who keeps discipline, but he who forsakes reproof makes himself wander about. He is on the path of life who keeps discipline, but he who forsakes reproof makes himself wander about. The forsaking of reproof. Reproof just means correction. It, it, it literally, in English, to reprove something to you. You used to think this was wrong. I'm proving it to you again. He makes himself wander about. Now that's one word in Hebrew. Other English translations translate that Hebrew word leads others astray. Either translation is okay. I favor leads others astray because whenever you're wondering about a, a translation issue, you look at the context. And the immediate context is leading others astray. Look at verse 16. The wages of the righteous is life. The income of the wicked, punishment. Wicked people are hurting others. Verse 18. He who covers up hatred has lying lips. He who spreads a bad report is a, is a fool. That's hating others, hurting others. Verse 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. That's hurting others. So the context is hurting others. Everyone around this person is hurt and even can be badly influenced by someone who gives the impression of always being right. That's a, that's a difficult person to be around. That may be a person with a very powerful demeanor. You ever been around one of those guys? Some of you are those guys who you walk into a room and people gravitate to you. You have a responsibility. You cannot present yourself as always right. You cannot present yourself as uncorrectable. You know what? Uh, what I, I have the privilege of counseling with a lot of younger pastors and I get calls from them. You know, one of the things I like to ask them is, um, do, you, do you ever receive correction from anyone in your congregation? And you know, most pastors tend to have a problem with that, especially younger guys. Well, I can't do that because, you know, you have to do that. You can't be perceived as the one who can't be corrected. Otherwise, they're not going to receive correction from you. It's very hard to say to someone, you know, it seems like that you assert how right you are about everything. But maybe you have to say that. And this is everywhere in Proverbs. This is basically what the book of Proverbs is about. Proverbs 12.1 Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is senseless. 13.18 Poverty and disgrace come to him who neglect discipline, but he who keeps reproof will be honored. Proverbs 15.5 An ignorant fool spurns his father's discipline, but he who keeps reproof is prudent. 15.10 Grievous discipline is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof uh, will die. Now I can read a whole bunch more to you, but this is everywhere in Proverbs. If you know in your heart... And really, I, I've discovered as a pastor that age doesn't matter, although as if you're younger, you're more likely to have this problem. If you know in your heart that receiving correction, even receiving a, a, a suggestion, is nearly impossible for you, or worse, you think you rarely, if ever, need it, that's an indicator of a tumor of pride. It's just, it just is. And I have a cure for you. Here's the cure. If you're married... Utilize your wife. If you're not, find a brother who will help you. And here's what I want you to do. If you know this is you, 
You ask your wife or a brother in the Lord to correct you on something every day or every week until you stop the pattern of a prideful response. Until you can go, hey, I was able to receive that. I might not agree with it, but I can receive it in humility and I can be thankful for them. And your wife is going to think she's died and gone to heaven if you say, would you correct me every day? And it doesn't count as nagging. 10 o'clock every night, I need some correction. And she's going to say, can you sign this in blood? And we'll never stop. No, That's the only way to correct it, gentlemen, is practice. Is to, is instead of saying, you know, I think over the next 30, 40 years, every time I receive correction, I'm going to try and do this a little bit better. No, that's like doing one push-up a month and saying I'm going to get in shape. Just get somebody to help you. Um, I was discipled by a man years ago who gave me an assignment to correct him on something. So I came back the next week. I corrected him. He got mad and told me to get out of his house. Like, what, what's your problem? He actually revealed his own heart. What I corrected him on, incidentally, was the way he, he, he treated his wife in public. And I, I didn't appreciate it. And she ended up leaving him because of his abusive behavior. So he should have listened. So listen to the one who corrects you. That's the only way through it. Um, You can read books about humility. You can read books about how to be correctable. There's nothing like walking through it, right? It's like reading a book about being in the army. It does not make you in the army. Here's a second hallmark. Of the humble man, he is desperately aware of his need for prayer. He's desperately aware of his need for prayer. Turn with me to Psalm 3. Now, I just preached through Psalm 3, interestingly, in the Sunday school hour. And I want to revisit some important principles about prayer. It's a short psalm. I'm just going to read it to us. Psalm 3. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. I want to revisit three principles because what this psalm really shows is how to progress in trusting the Lord. And the first principle is that strong faith begins in trouble. It begins in trouble. And I want to be really clear about this. God brings trouble to you. God brings that trouble. He brings it for your good. He brings it for your strengthening. In verses 1 and 2, David describes the countless enemies. He says many, many, many in the first two verses. He's running for his life from his son Absalom. And that's his focus. He begins in trouble. And literally in a matter of hours, he went from being seated on the throne of Jerusalem, everything is hunky-dory and good, to packing up and running for his life. What a turn of events. So strong faith begins in trouble. The second principle, strong faith progresses to trust. It progresses to trust. In verses 3 through 6, David declares that God is his shield. He is his glory. He's the one who answers prayer. He's the one who makes him fearless. These are declarations of trust in the Lord. 
And then the third principle, strong faith progresses to triumph. So you go from trouble to trust to triumph. Verses 7 and 8, David remembers all the victories of the past. He gives honor and glory to God alone for saving him. But I want you to notice something here. The triumph is not a win in battle. This is actually written early in the morning before a battle occurs. The triumph is internal. It is inside. And when we went through Psalm 3 during the Sunday school hour last week, I I pointed out that he had prayed the night before and one of the things he prayed for was a good night's sleep. And he said here, I lay down and slept. So that little answer to prayer is an indicator to him that he has triumph internally and that he can trust whatever the Lord does. David literally had an army of his own that ran with him. He had an army surrounding him and yet he was desperately aware of his need for prayer. He took the time in his tent the morning of a battle that's likely to occur to sit and compose Psalm 3. That's phenomenal. Proud people, proud men pray very little at all. Proud people When they do pray, most often center their prayers on themselves, on their desires. I've heard this taught before, and perhaps I've taught it, and there is a measure of truth to it, that if you find that prayerlessness is fairly characteristic of your life, that that's a discipline problem, that may be true to a certain extent, or maybe it's a time management problem, that may be true to a certain extent. I would submit that the ultimate problem is it's a pride problem. If you're not praying, you don't think you need to, right? It's like if you're not eating, you don't think that you need to. If you're not doing anything, you don't think you need to. Martin Luther was famous for declaring that he spent two hours every morning in prayer. And if he had a particularly busy day, he made sure to spend three hours in prayer. That was a a dependence at a level that none of us have ever experienced. Prayerlessness is not a discipline problem primarily. It's not a time management problem primarily. It's a pride problem. It is a belief that my ability to solve problem X, Y, and Z is more important than actually going to the Lord about it for at least a few minutes first. Here's a third hallmark. Let's see if I can get to the door before you guys because this one is going to step on some toes. Who's the slowest? I think I can get through that door over there. He keeps his opinions to himself unless he's asked. He keeps his opinions to himself unless he's asked. There are countless gray areas in life in which wisdom is the order of the day rather than the command from Scripture, although a scriptural command might guide a wise decision. Whether or not your wife buys yellow dishes or red dishes, that's an opinion-based decision. And if you stick your nose in it when she didn't ask you to, you might ruin the joy of her actually making that decision. Whether or not your brother in Christ drives a minivan or an SUV is not a biblical decision. It's a wisdom decision. And you get the idea. You can can come up with all those yourselves. You're familiar with this text, and I'll just read it to you. We'll come back to this a couple more times. And I'm going to give you the principles. The text is Philippians 2. You don't have to turn there. 
Therefore, if anyone is in, if there's any encouragement in Christ, rather, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Here it is, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I want to outline three principles that are in, in that text. The first one, doing nothing from selfish ambition. Doing nothing from selfish ambition. If giving an opinion is only a way to demonstrate how smart you are, that's a sinful motive. That's a selfish motive. And I know, guys, it's difficult uh, with, with your kids or with somebody who's less experienced than, than you in something. You see them doing something that you know, you know, like I've got these two by fours and I'm going to use Elmer's glue to stick them together. You're like, that's not going to last. Okay, let them make the mistake. Why are you going to say this? Are you going to say Elmer's glue won't work on two by fours because it's going to fall on people and hurt someone? That's a godly motive. Or are you going to say it just because you're smarter than they are? There's a difference. There's a second principle. Regard others as more important. Regard others as more important. If you're not actually genuinely concerned for another, the giving of an opinion is simply a display of self-righteousness. That's all it is. If you're not actually concerned for them and, and, and have a genuine regard. Here's a third principle. Looking out for the interests of others. Looking out for the interests of others. Similarly, if giving an opinion isn't for the purpose of actually giving help, then it's wrongly motivated. I have a, uh, a relative, and she uh, hasn't in many years, but she spent some time in our house. And every other thing that anybody said, she started a sentence with actually, and then corrected that. I finally said, you're not allowed to use the word actually in my house. You, you can't use it. I, I will not allow that word. That's a bad word. I'd rather you use four letter words in my house than the word actually. Because you're making everybody sick. Look out for the interests of others. So, how do you do this? Let me give you five questions to ask yourself first. And just the act of asking these questions might help you keep your foot out of your mouth. The first question, have I thought about whether I'm being a help or not? Have I thought about whether I'm being a help or not? This is in contrast to the mouth opening before the brain activates. Am I actually being helpful? Or do I just want to feel apart? Now, I, I understand this. Sometimes men or women want to give their opinions simply because they want to feel involved. Well, there's a different way to do that. How about going to someone and saying, hey, I'd like to feel involved. That's different. Here's a second question. Have I asked this person if they would like my opinion? Have I asked this person if they would like my opinion? What a concept, isn't it? To, to ask, would a second or third opinion be helpful to you? And that person might say, no, I'd rather make my own mistakes. I want the two by four to fall on my head if I do it wrong. Great. Praise the Lord. I'll pray for you. Hope you have good insurance. And that's fine. You can say that. There's a third question. Do I have the type of relationship that merits giving an opinion? Do I have the type of relationship that merits giving an opinion? Proverbs 27.9 says, Oil and incense make the heart glad, so counsel from the soul is sweet to his friend. Do you have a relationship with someone that makes counsel sweet? 
if you don't have that relationship, you should reconsider. Do I have the type of relationship that merits giving an opinion? Here's a fourth question. Do I give my opinion a lot when it isn't asked for? Do I give my opinion a lot when it isn't asked for? And I don't know what to tell you except to tell you to start tracking it. Go for a week or two and start tracking how many times you offer your opinion. If you get up to 10 in one day, you've got a problem. It may indicate that you get an emotional charge from giving your opinion. Here's a fifth question. Have I considered other options first? Have I considered other options first? And I know we're going deep into an outline here. Let me give you three options to consider. You you understand that the whole point is to get you to think before the mouth opens? Three options to consider. Number one, pray for longer than five seconds before giving an opinion. Pray for longer than five seconds. More seriously, number two, pray for a week before giving an opinion. Pray for a week. It's amazing what that week will do for your perspective and your amount of care. If you find that in that week there's 87 other things that you wanted to give your opinion about, then you know you have a problem, right? And that you need to deal with it. It'll help you ensure that you're, you're acting in helpful wisdom. And the third option to consider is trust that the Lord will lead the other person amazingly without your help or input. I, I have been amazed at how many times God has been able to do things like create the whole world without my help. He, he didn't ask my opinion. Here's a fourth hallmark of a godly man, a humble man. You don't have to turn to this text, but you know it. He takes love believes all things seriously. He takes love believes all things seriously. And obviously that is from 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It says, love believes all things. It is in that list of uh, 15 qualities of genuine love. Love believes all things. This isn't a statement of blind optimism. This is not you saying, I'm going to walk off this cliff and I believe I can fly. That's not love believes all things. It's a general statement that speaks, listen carefully, about the relationship between two people. It's a relational statement that love doesn't internally reduce the other person to always be the sole problem. That it's not always them. To the proud man, the other person is always the problem. This is what you hear from a proud man. Well, I've examined my heart and I don't find any sin there. See also 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, I've examined my heart, and I don't see any sin there, but I'm not acquitted, because I don't know what's in my own heart. Only God does. So that one's easy to to, uh, put down. The proud man habitually magnifies and even potentially spreads gossip concerning the sin of others without considering that there might be other factors involved. This is, a, this is a prideful position and there's three ways that this pride can be manifested when you're not believing all things. Three ways this pride can be manifested. First of all, interpreting actions or words in the worst light possible. Interpreting actions or words in, in, the, best light poss- in the worst light possible. Well, she ignored me as she walked by. Well, are there possible other reasons for that? Are you interpreting something in the worst light possible? You know, somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, Steve, and I go, What? Oh, you're angry with me. No, I had a fly on my forehead. There might be another reason. You know how you know? There's only one way to know, and that's to ask. Or better yet, just assume the best. There's a second way this pride can be manifested. 
stacking a list of faulty interpretations in your mind. Taking it a step further, if you stack these negative interpretations internally, you're in danger of beginning to view that person as less than human and less than you. That's a, that's a, a very, very harsh reality. But that gets you to a point of bitterness where you can't even think of one good thing about a person because you've stacked these interpretations. Here's a third way pride can be manifested in this area. Internally reflecting on the other's imperfections. Reflecting on the other's imperfections and thinking about it and cherishing it and and chewing on it. That's literally the opposite of the grace of God. How how would you like it if there was a verse in the Bible that says, uh, God your Father chews on and meditates on all your faults all the time. That's the opposite of grace. This is the act of believing, the act of believing that the other person is doing the best they can or perhaps the best interpretation of an act or a word is the one you should think about. This is internal and it requires an act of discipline to not go to these terrible places. Now, I've used this illustration before but it's, it's very meaningful to me and it's very poignant in my own life. One of the great joys I have as a pastor is the relationships I try to build with many of the children at, at Grace Bible Church. I love the kids here. And, and some of the parents, uh, some, of, some of you here, you bring your kids to say hi to me, uh, sometimes every Sunday. Uh, and I love them. Many of the kids hug me. And, and I, I delight in that. My joke is that you never know when one of them will be the next million dollar donor to the building program. But eh, that's, not, that's not the real reason. And of course, the greatest delight is to see these kids eventually come to faith in Christ. What, what a joy and what a delight this is. But I've been pastoring long enough to see when parents suddenly quit bringing their kids to see me. And when, worse, I see a child that I've been hugging for five years suddenly distance herself from me. Well, that's pretty obvious. Something changed. And I don't know what it was. I never have known. That is a hard thing. Have you ever done this to anyone? Have you stopped believing that perhaps God is doing something in that person's life that's just not your business? That's not about you? That maybe there's some reason you're not aware of for some behavior or some word that feels offensive to you? Instead, the humble man is always looking for the best in his brothers, looking for the best in his wife, looking for the best in his family. You ought to be a habitual optimist with everyone around you. If the Lord needs to nail somebody for something that's internal that you don't know about, that's God's business. And he's perfectly capable of doing that. And listen, isn't this what you desire from others? That if you walk into a meeting late... That others assume this doesn't mean you have some fatal character flaw? That they assume the best? Well, there must be a good reason. And it goes on from there. Don't you want that if you snap at someone verbally, that they immediately assume you must be having a terrible day and they go right to praying for you and being thankful for you and thinking the very best about you? Don't you want that if you disappoint someone that that person is always giving endless grace to you and just believing the best? You know, some men in our church that work hard at being a support to me as a pastor, these men have literally told me, you can't disappoint me. 
you, if you do disappoint me, I'll still believe the best about you. And yeah, I might even call you out on it, but you can't disappoint me. I will not go there with you. You can count on that. that isn't that what we actually want from everyone? That's what we want, and so we give it. Here's a fifth hallmark of a humble Christian man. He can genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice. He can genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice. You don't have to turn here, but this is a text you probably guessed already. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, for my purposes this morning, I won't deal with weeping with those who weep, except to remind you that the suffering of another person ought not to be cause for rejoicing in your life. Ultimately, we rejoice when God judges the wicked, but rarely do you know if someone's suffering is related to sin. That was the problem with Job's friends, right? They made that assumption. But I want to focus on rejoicing with those who rejoice. And this is important because this is the antidote to a sin that perhaps every one of us struggle with at some level, and that is the sin of jealousy. That's how you deal with jealousy, is rejoicing with those who rejoice. Jealousy is the opposite of love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 reminds us that love is not what? Jealous. You can't be jealous and be loving at the same time. It's impossible. It means to not envy, to not desire something sinfully, to not be consumed with wanting what someone else has. And there are, there are many places, but I want to point out three places that a man is tempted to be jealous. First of all, we're tempted to be jealous of those who have more than we do. Those who have more. Those men who just seem to choose the path to prosperity. Those who were, who were blessed by the Lord to be a magnet for money, a magnet for wealth. What's the antidote? Rejoice with them. Thank the Lord for His blessing in their life. You might have to choke that out. You might have to punch yourself in the face to say, I'm going to pray this prayer. Thank you, Lord, for blessing this man, but it's good for you. Because you're being thankful, you're rejoicing with those who rejoice. Here's a second way we're tempted to be jealous. We're tempted to be jealous of those who have different relationships than we do. Different relationships. A single man might be jealous of a married man. Trust me, I've counseled with married men who are jealous of the single men because they married a horrible woman. Or maybe those who have relationships with someone you view as prominent or important. It's easy to be jealous of them. So it's easy to be jealous of relationships. You know what the cure to that is? Is be a great brother in the relationships you have. That's the cure. And here's a a third area we're tempted to be jealous. We're tempted to be jealous in the church. We're tempted to be jealous in the church. I am so amazed at how even in little tiny churches, bitterness and anger can build up in someone because, well, Mildred got to play the piano on Friday and Sunday and I haven't gotten to in three weeks. Like, there's 11 people in your church. Who cares? And Mildred is terrible and you're worse. So who cares? (laughs) Well, that Jerry, he keeps getting called on to pray in small group. I haven't been called on in six weeks and I'm counting. This little ministry is my domain, my kingdom. I, I, I talked to a, a pastor who struggled with this, and lots of pastors struggle with this. And the way he dealt with it was to assert himself as something that he wasn't. And he, he was talking to me on the phone, and he said, you know, I'm having this trouble in my church, and the, our church can't understand that I am God's man called to save this county. I was like, you got 35 people in your church. You're not even saving your block. 
<laughs> and that was that was pride that had built up in him, and the the argumentation that happens over dumb little stupid things. You want to solve that? Be the lowest of the low. I've told this story before. I, 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 my wife says this will be the last illustration I, I share on this earth because I tell it so often. But as a church planter in Texas, we rented a little building and it was all hands on deck to set up and tear down every week. I was there setting up chairs and my job after church, every Sunday after preaching, was to sweep the room. It was about this size. To sweep the room. And we had a we had a prominent businessman in, in the community come to our church and he kept saying, I want to serve the Lord here. I want, this is a great work that's happening. I want to serve the Lord. So I'm literally sweeping the floor and he's following me around saying, I want to serve the Lord. And I said, great. And I turned around and handed him the broom. And he literally does this. Like, oh, that's not what I meant. Like, all right. I'm not interested in that. The Lord's not interested in that. Be the lowest of the low. Jealousy is a dead-end road, isn't it? It's an absolute dead-end road. I've told my kids this since they were little. There will always be someone with a bigger house than you. There will always be someone with a better car than you. There will always be someone with more friends than you. There will always be someone with a seemingly more important job than you, a seemingly more important ministry than you. It's a spiritual trap to become envious because the moment when you focus your your affection and your envy on one guy for 20 years and you finally pass him up, then some superstar is going to run by you like you're standing still. And God will bring that person. Oh, let's bring this guy down a notch. It is a trap. What's the cure? Be the lowest. Be the lowest. James 1.9 says, The brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position. Why? Why, I'm a child of the living God. What higher position is that? There is none. There is no higher position. You've been saved. You've been set apart by the Savior, Jesus Christ himself. And I have a part in the coming kingdom of Christ. You know, one of the craziest anomalies or or, or, uh, almost paradoxes I've ever seen in the church of Jesus Christ was I was part of a church years ago as a very young man. And the chairman of the board of elders, and this was a large church, three, 4,000 people at the time. The chairman of the board of elders, godly man, incredibly gifted Bible teacher, just taught small groups. He wasn't a vocational pastor. He was a janitor. He was a janitor in the local high school. What a dichotomy. And if you asked him about it, he would say, he would just talk about, oh man, I love doing this. You know how many kids I get to share Christ with? And well, what have you learned? Well, I've learned that when I sweep a floor, I'm going to do a good job because it is the Lord Christ I serve. He was a godly man, ironically, in a high position in the church and in the lowest position in his work. What a humble man. Here's a sixth hallmark. He confesses sin as a means to mortify pride. He confesses sin as a means to mortify pride. Now, mortify is a word we don't use much anymore, and when we do, we generally use it in a modern sense. Uh, your, my, your wife might say, I was mortified when you checked the mail in your boxer shorts, and we understand that. You might say to your toddler, I was mortified when you filled your diaper right during the prayer time in small group. Um, the original meaning of mortify, though, is way more serious than that. It's made famous by the Puritans. It speaks of death. 
It speaks of dying. And you can hear the word mortuary or mortician in mortify. The Puritan pastor John Owen wrote his famous book on sanctification called The Mortification of Sin. And nothing mortifies pride like confession of sin. I do want to have you turn here because it's an important text. Turn to James 5. Not that all the texts aren't important, but I want you to read a couple verses with me here. James 5. I'd like to show you the confession of sin in the context of our relationship in the church. James chapter 5. And we'll read verses 14 and 15. James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now this passage is often taught with some principles like this in, in some variation. Uh, sometimes it's taught that the very best people to pray for you when you're sick are the elders of the church. Uh, just to be clear, in our church we've had many, many people come and ask for prayer from the elders based on this. We won't ever say no. We don't say, aha, you have the wrong interpretation of James 5. You can pray for yourself. Uh, we won't do that. We'll always pray for them. We love that. That's not the point of the text. It's also taught uh, in charismatic circles that they, they add to those prayers anointing with oil in the expectation of miraculous healing. This is actually, uh, basically, in our day, it would be saying, uh, he must call for the elders of the church who are to give him an aspirin and pray over him. It's a medicinal use of, of oil. You know, when, when everything you had for medicine was in about three jars that was one of your options well anoint him with oil maybe that will make him feel better and then they often throw in quickly oh yes and if there's any sin to be forgiven that happens too actually that's the whole point the context is verse 16 therefore confess your sins to one another Therefore, literally in Greek, confess with words or agree with words that you have sinned. This is not just saying, well, I've thought about things in my heart and it's between me and the Lord. No, this is the use of words, saying things out loud. Why are the elders involved? The elders are involved because this is a man under the spiritual oppression of discipline from the Lord and potentially under church discipline as well. Now, some take this as emotional or spiritual weakness, others as physical illness. I'm not going to get into that. In either case, here's what's happened. This is the situation. The one in trouble has asked for help from the elders of the church because he is attributing his own troubles to his own sin, to his own rebellion. Between him and the Lord, he has come to the conclusion that this is my fault. And he's asking for forgiveness from the Lord. He's confessing sin that the elders already know about. And he's saying, I need to make this right. I believe that this illness is a discipline from the Lord. And so I'm going to check this off. I'm going to make this right with you in humility. Here's another clue. James gives an illustration that helps us. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. The illustration is the withholding of the Lord's blessing until restoration happens and then the restoration of the Lord's blessing. That's the illustration. 
But my focus is on verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. I was counseling with a man once who was genuinely trying to figure out his wife. And and I don't say that in a joking manner that nobody can figure out women and so forth. He was genuinely trying to figure her out because he realized that no matter what he did, he could never measure up. He just couldn't measure up. There was always some criticism. that If she said, can you please do A, B, and C, he would do it. And she would say, well, too bad you didn't do D, D, E, and F also. And so he was trying to figure this out. And he said to me, it's becoming clear that I'll never be right in her eyes. I'll never measure up. And so he was trying to learn how to walk through this in a godly manner. And I asked him if he'd ever confronted her about it about the the nagging and there's nothing wrong with your wife as a sister in the Lord pointing out sin to you that's that's a good and healthy and a godly thing but in her case uh, there, there was no restoration it was just a continual stacking up of offenses and I asked him if he'd ever confronted her about this about her ungracious and prideful attitude and, and he said that he had and it didn't go anywhere and then just like almost as a side note he just mentioned yeah you know in our 15 years of marriage I actually can't remember her repenting of anything, ever. And you can see the light go on. And he just started weeping and he just said, I, I'm married to a woman who doesn't know Christ. She's never repented of anything. And I, and I pressed him on it. I said, are you just being ungracious to her? And he said, no, I literally cannot remember one time that she said, I'm sorry or I was wrong. I even had the opportunity to speak with them together quite a few times. You know, never once would she admit that anything was her responsibility, anything was her area of sanctification to work on. So right in front of her, I told him, you're married to an unbeliever, you need to learn how to work through this graciously. Confession of sin mortifies pride. And, bonus, it gives you comfort that you are in fact in Christ. If you're doubting your salvation, go confess sin to five people that you've sinned against. Do it today. That's what people who are in Christ do. When you won't confess sin, what does that lead to? It leads to making excuses, which is a form of lying. It leads to flat out lying. You will do anything to cover your sin. You'll do anything. I need to move on just a little bit here. Our seventh hallmark. The humble man humbly understands his need for other people. He humbly understands his need for other people. The humble Christian man cherishes and seeks genuine relationships with other people. And, you know, someone might say that they're obeying Hebrews 10.25 by being a regular attendee at church. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our assembly together as is the habit of some. Hey, I, I'm in church all the time. I'm, I'm obeying this. But they conveniently forget that that admonition is bookended. It's surrounded by relationship. The whole context says this. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is to have the sum, but encouraging one another. You, you can't isolate that I meet with the church without the encouraging one another, encouraging one another. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out in dispute against all sound wisdom. That the one who isolates himself from relationships is demonstrating other selfishness. The proud man might say this, and I've, I've heard this 
uh, from men in our church. Well, I don't really have a need for other close relationships. I don't have a perceived need. Well, let's just bulldoze that right now. First of all, there's a potential salvation issue here because First John says we love the body of Christ. We, we, we're not separate from the body. We, we're not aloof. But beyond the larger internal, eternal implication, do you notice the inherent selfishness? I don't really need close relationships, which also means you don't care about those who do. Maybe a man needs you. It's not all about what you need. There's only one reason that a man avoids close relationships, self-protection and pride. I've heard all the excuses. If anyone could say, I have no need for close relationships, if anyone on this earth could actually say that, the best candidate would be Jesus, right? He has no need of us. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his humanity... He said in Matthew 26, 38, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He said to his disciples, Remain here and keep watch with me. He needed his friends to be close by. He needed them, not as God, but as a man. He was praying to his Father and he took comfort. He took solace from the fact that his closest friends were just off a little ways. And yes, close relationships can be messy. Why? Because your brother might see your sin and heaven forbid might say something. But Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of what? A friend. 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times and the brother is born for adversity. I've heard this too. I'm close to my wife. She's all I need. The marriage relationship was never meant to substitute for meaning relationships, meaningful relationships in the body of Christ. Read Titus 2. Women need women. Men need men. One final admonition here. We talk about sanctification and obeying Christ often. Jesus said to abide in the vine. He is the vine. In John 15, and in verse 10 of John 15, he defines the evidence of abiding in the vine as obeying his commandments. That's the evidence. In other words, abiding speaks of a genuine salvation experience which bears the fruit of obedience. And you might say this concerning obedience, but there's so many commands in, in Christ. The New Testament is a big book. Well, I want to boil all of this down, over five messages, down to one thing. If you'll pursue this one command, you're probably obeying them all. It's one I read earlier. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. This one command will bring you likely to the point of obeying all the others, all of them. And I want to finish our time by testing that theory with you. And we'll be done after this. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. And we're going to fly through this because I'm just making one point. Ephesians 4. We're just going to test the theory. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility. What's at the top of the list of walking worthy? Humility. Okay, let's walk through in Greek some of the imperatives, some of the commands in the coming chapters. Chapter 4, verse 25. 
Therefore, laying aside falsehood, here's the command, the imperative. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What does that take? It takes humility. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. What does that take? Humility. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. What does that take? Takes humility. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up. What does that take? Humility. Skip to chapter 5, verse 25. 525, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The ultimate humility. Chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What does that take? Humility. Verse 5, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ. What does that take? Humility. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What does that take? Humility. If you are in the boat of going, I just feel like I'm, I, I'm just messing up everywhere. I'm just disobeying the Lord all over the place. Then hone it down to one thing. Humility. Get into Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but with humility of mind regard others. One another is more important than yourselves. And watch as you begin to obey the Lord in every area of life. If you know in your heart like you've been here for all five of these messages over the past year and you haven't actually done anything about it, I don't know what to tell you. I've given you the truth. Take this and do something with it. Like by the time you go to bed tonight, what is your one, two, or three action items? What are you actually going to do differently? And that maybe it's I'm going to read Philippians 2, 3, and 4 50 times a day for a month. Or I'm going to memorize it. Or I'm going to go to my wife and I'm going to say, I would like you to point out anything prideful in my life every day for the next three months. And after she faints and you wave her and get get her back up, you just say, I need you to do this. I need you to help me with this. But what are you going to do with this? I talked to a pastor just this past week and he was just in tears. and And he just said, he just said, I, I love preaching and I love our church. But I have so many men in the church so filled with pride. All I do is conflict resolution and half the time it's with me. And he said, I just can't take it anymore. And so we talked for a while. So he's going to preach a, I think he said, a 20 message series on humility. He's just going to start. My prayer for our church is that we're filled with humble men who all want to be last. What did Jesus say about those who were last? What will they be? First, right? May God fill our church with humble men. That's my prayer. Our Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these men who are here. They have demonstrated humility. They could be at home sleeping in. They could be playing golf. They could be working in their yard. But they took time to hear the word of God, to gather with your men. Oh, Lord, I pray that our little church here would be a hallmark of humility, that that would be what we're known for. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening, men. Appreciate it.